People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Mary Louise Kelly is co-host of All Things Considered, NPR's flagship evening news magazine. She has reported from around the world, including North Korea, Iran, Iraq, Russia, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. She is the author of three books, two thrillers, and her latest, It Goes So Fast, a memoir. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and two sons. Welcome, Mary Louise, to Health Geek. Hi, Mary Louise. We're so excited to have you with us today. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this. We're grateful to our mutual friend, Heather Florence, who's introduced us to you. And Trisha and I have been very excited. We love your new book. It goes so fast. Thank We're you. So true. It's so true. <laughs> it's so true. So but true. before we get into that, we want to know a little bit about you. Tell us about growing up in Georgia and about your family of origin. So we moved to Georgia when I was four. I was actually born in Germany because my dad was drafted during the Vietnam War and was lucky enough to get sent to Bavaria instead of Vietnam, um, but did several years in Army intelligence. So um, I was born in a U.S. Army field hospital over there because my mom tagged along. We moved to Georgia when I was four. And I had just, you know, a lovely idyllic childhood, grew up there, one brother, Went to the same school for, gosh, 13 years, kindergarten through 12th grade, and continue to go back. My family's still there. I have two boys, as I'm sure we will yes, get yes. into <laughs> yes. sooner in the book, but I don't know if this is common across families, but I have one boy who's very Southern and the other boy less so, but my Southern boy, we're just teeing up spring break plans to get him back down there and try to get him out and do some hunting and fishing and do all the barbecue and the stuff that he loves down there. So I'm still back and forth to Georgia a fair bit. And you lost your dad while you were writing this book? Yeah, he had been sick for a long time. He was diagnosed with stage four cancer and wow. fought it for 17 years. Wow. The man does not quit. And then, you know, we reached the end during the pandemic and had wow. the experience that I think a lot of families have had where an already difficult, sad, painful situation was made so much worse because I yeah. couldn't, you know, they were scared to death to have right. me fly in and visit him and bring all the COVID germs. And my mom, all petite, five feet of her, ended up really caring for him for the last year. So oh. it was, you know, it's yeah. always, I guess, for everyone, got to be just one of the strangest bridges you'll ever cross to lose a parent. Yeah. And to lose him in that way and not be able to be there for the whole time and support him. I still think of him every day. Yeah. He, he taught me how to run. And every time I go out for a run, oh. which I did this morning, I'm like, hey, dad, it's me. Oh, doing what you taught me, right? lacing up my shoes. So um, sweet. I yeah. feel him with me when I am out and about doing that. Feel him in my ear, like encouraging me and saying, you know, because he... <laughs> insisted that I needed to take this up in high school and I fought it and fought it and fought it and then finally thought, yeah, you're right, actually, this helps. So you started in high school? This Well, before writing. that, 
The running thing. My dad was a big runner, always, you know, wanted to run the 10K in Atlanta, which is the Peachtree, which is a famous road race. He ran marathons. He ran everything and dragged my brother along and me, insisted that I run track in high school where I lost every race. But at (laughs) a certain point it clicked. He always told me, you know, as I got older and hit high school and college, if you have a problem and you can't figure out the way forward, Short-term solution, lace up your running shoes, go for a run, have a cup of coffee when you get back. It may not be the best path forward, but a path may begin to reveal itself. Man, have I used that to navigate through problems large and small. Um, It doesn't solve the problems, but it does give you that little glimpse of, okay, here's a baby step toward getting out of it. Right, right, right. That's such good advice. Was it your dad who pointed you toward journalism or how did that happen? Oh, no, the very opposite. (laughs) A letter that I got that I'll always remember from my father came senior year of college where I was applying to everything and trying to figure out what to do with my life and was thinking journalism. And I remember my dad writing me a pretty honest letter that suggested, would I ever like to not be economically reliant on him? Like, would I ever like to move out by my own car and house? How about law school? Have I taken the LSAT? So no, he always encouraged it. But I think, you know, if he'd been able to wave a magic wand, I would be a lawyer speaking to you today. (laughs) But to not sell him short, I mean, it was something that I wanted to do from a very early age and just loved my first experience as a journalist. I'll put quotes around journalists, but I founded the Lemons Ridge Bugle when I was, I don't know, 11 years old, something like that. Lemons Ridge was the cul-de-sac we lived on in suburban (laughs) Atlanta. And I wrote about, you know, dog of the month and there was a yard of the month and we would give you a pink flamingo in your yard if you won, (laughs) which was probably a mixed bag of honors. My dad, you know, took that to his law firm. He was a lawyer and Xeroxed it for me and helped me distribute it and throw it on people's. Yeah. So he always supported it. It's not something anybody in my family had ever done. And so have you always been curious? I guess, right? The beauty of being a journalist, of being a reporter, is you have license to ask anybody anything. Yes. They don't have to answer it. Right. But there's a much heightened chance that they will because they don't owe me anything. Nobody owes me an answer to anything or to let me in their door or take all my nosy questions. But <laughs> the NPR audience, they might let in the door. I remember I edited my high school paper in Atlanta. And when I was kind of wrapping my head around that before I became the editor and was just trying to figure out, is this something I like? I remember it was a uniform school. You had to wear a pretty strict uniform every day. And the man tasked with enforcing that was simultaneously the assistant high school principal and the football coach. And he was scary (laughs) as hell. And I was terrified of Mr. Connolly. And I did, however, have a grievance because they had a new earring policy that they couldn't be too long and dangly. And I thought this was just the height of outrage and you know unfairness. And I asked for a meeting to do a interview with him for the school newspaper. Wait, um, what year are the you? Love Atlanta how, type. How old I are must you? have been, I would have been maybe a junior in high school, sophomore, junior in high school. He took my meeting request and I went and really grilled him on just <laughs> utterly unfair and, and misguided this was. And he took my questions and we ran the story and we got letters to the editor about it. And by God, they changed the policy. <laughs> wow. And I just 
remember thinking, <laughs> wow, like I could never have done that. Mary Louise, high school junior. But he took questions for the newspaper because I was asking them on behalf of all my fellow students. And right. it was a way very, very early in my development as a journalist of realizing I can do this. I can put hard questions to a person in a position of power in the service of holding them accountable and asking why something happened and maybe affecting change. And yeah. it was so powerful. And I still feel that, you know, I'm questioning people about slightly bigger stakes these days as I interview newsmakers in my right. job at NPR. And yeah. That sense, though, of like, they're not taking my questions. It's it's all these yeah. people lined up behind me. Like, they want right. to know what's up with the earrings. And they're not going to take, you know, no right. comment for an answer. So let's go. You know, I, we hear that loud and clear from you. I mean, you really are in service of your listeners or of your population. Like, you are really doing that for the greater good, really. Well, and I'm under no illusion that I'm saving the world every day. No, no, but you get, is, you understand the responsibility yeah. of it. It feels like a real privilege to be able to ask those questions. You know, these days it's more likely about our elections or about foreign policy or yeah. big weighty issues. But that feeling of, you know, most Americans are never going to get to question our leaders and try to hold them to account and really understand what informs their thinking about something. It's not about doing a gotcha thing. It's about saying, OK, I don't understand this. Why is it this way? Why are we making decisions this way as a country? To be able to ask those questions on behalf of others and then put the answers out in the world on air yeah. or writing. I mean, that's just the that's most incredible. fun thing in the world. To your point, you've covered some pretty important world events. So what are some of the stories that have affected you the most? And what have you learned from some of those stories? Oh, goodness. That's such a big it's a question. Big question. <laughs> it's a big question. And there's such a range because some of the conversations that have been the most powerful are about a tiny thing in mm. a one person's life, but where hopefully people listening into that very intimate conversation can think, oh man, yeah, like I've been there. I hear you. During the pandemic, where we were doing all kinds of interviews, interviewing the head of the CDC and interviewing Dr. Fauci at the White House and trying to get a sense of like, how is our country handling this? Interviewing every doctor we could find who was trying to wrap their heads around this new thing, as were we all, but, you know, trying to do the public service of when people were cut off and mm. sequestered in our houses, trying to get yeah. actual as good information as anybody had out into the world. You do those important big interviews about the science, about the policy. But if I think back, the series of conversations that I will carry with me from the pandemic was with this one guy who you've never heard of. You'll remember it came from Wuhan, China in the beginning. And when we were all just starting to get our heads around it, I had my producers trying to track who can we talk to in Wuhan because they're totally locked down there long before anyone here was like, who can we get on the phone? And you geolocate people who are tweeting and ideally in English and who are in Wuhan. And we've found a guy who's a management consultant who had been locked down in his apartment for three weeks. And we just called him and I talk to him about, you know, what are you eating? How does that work? Yeah, yeah. Do you have a roommate? Are you living with someone? And he kind of laughed and said, well, no, you know, I was trying to date. I'm looking for a wife, um, but you know, <laughs> I, I don't have a roommate right now. And I was like, well, and I guess being quarantined and locked down isn't making the, isn't the dating thing any easier. And he laughed. And um, we kept calling him back as in China, they worked their way through the stages of lockdown and opening up and then locking down again. And there was one conversation I remember where he had just been allowed 
allowed to leave his apartment for the first time in weeks. And he went and got a pizza. And it was right as we wow. were locking down here. Wow. And for the first time, I'm interviewing him from home because they won't let me go out into the newsroom. And we just talked and talked. And I've never met him. I don't know what he looks like. But it was this voice out there just talking from his living room to mine and letting a few million people eavesdrop in on that conversation uh, and so interesting. connecting with a human on the other side of the planet, yeah. having an experience where I'm like, just tell me what it's like. How sick are you of instant ramen at this point? And he, <laughs> he did find a woman and um, oh. invited me to the wedding and I wasn't able <laughs> no to go. Way. We've kind of been on <laughs> so this path cute. together for a while. And those conversations are the ones, somebody I've never met, but you're having an incredibly intimate conversation with that resonate for me. You've done all kinds of journalism. You've worked in radio and print and TV. What's your favorite of all those? That's a hard one. It's like asking which of your children you love best. <laughs> um, I will say, and I'll get in trouble for this, I love TV the least, and I'm all right with admitting that. I think because I love to write and I love words, mm. and TV ultimately is very good at what it's good at, which is the pictures. It's the video. Mm. That's ultimately what's going to drive your story on TV, and you can write the prettiest script in the world to go with it it's not going to be the most powerful thing. So to me, I, you know, I love to write, obviously. I write books. I write for newspapers. I write for magazines. I did not expect to love radio. I didn't seek it out, but I got a, I hesitate even to call it an internship. It was like a one-week unpaid following somebody around while I was in grad school at the BBC. And I kind of got the broadcasting bug you know, if you like deadlines, then broadcast deadlines are about as extreme as it gets, where you right. you know, you've seven seconds to figure out what you're gonna type next or say next, as opposed to hours, the way that print journalism works. So I loved the urgency of it and the immediacy of it. And then, you know, again, the intimacy of all you've got as a voice. In print, you can run a picture, you can run a chart, you can run a graph. If people lose their place, they can go back and reread four paragraphs up. In radio, if I lose you, if you get bored or you can't follow where a conversation's going, you're probably going to turn channel. it off and find something better yeah. to do. And so the immediacy of a live radio broadcast where it is just me in conversation oh. with somebody else trying to figure out, like, what makes you tick? Why do you believe what you believe? Tell me your story. I love that. Mm. I love it. It's taken me a long time in this profession to realize there's a subtle but significant difference between an interview and a conversation. Yes, yeah. Sometimes you're doing a straight interview. I need to get the facts. I got four minutes to do it. You know, you're at this uh, wildfire. Tell me where you are, right. what you what see, you're doing. what the mm -hmm. what what's you know what what's going on today. Right. But. A conversation is a slightly different thing where you have mm -hmm. to make yourself a little bit vulnerable yeah. and, you know, you're not going to be able to draw somebody out unless right. you're really listening and showing a little bit of leg yourself. That's kind of fun too. So what about along the way mentors? Did you have any particular people that, you know, helped you or that you looked up to in your field? Many. I've been fortunate yeah. to have many, including current colleagues who I work with today at NPR, who I, you know, I listen to the other anchors and how <laughs> they do an interview and think, oh, I would never have thought to ask that. 
oh, I would never have followed up in quite that way. Like, let me hear how you did it. Or like this interview is going off. The <laughs> let me hear how you're going to save this one. Cause man, am I glad it's not me in there. Um, my very first real job by which I mean, you know, out of college, I'm actually getting a paycheck, proving my dad wrong. It is possible to get a paycheck as a journalist, although I was back living at home. So maybe not proving his point. My first real job was as a summer intern at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution right after I graduated from college. And then they hired me to stay on on the politics desk. So I was covering first the night cop shift for Cobb County, Georgia, which back in the early mid 90s involved listening to the police scanner and <laughs> seeing you know what felt like standing up and going to run to check it out at nine at night and then i got a big promotion to cover the dekalb county commission in the daytime which was really awesome um, yeah. <laughs> compared to the, <laughs> the night, night shift out of the decatur bureau but i remember my bureau chief there. It's a man named David Beasley. He was a good reporter, and he was a fan of just very basic mantras about journalism. I remember once being just totally lost in a story, and I couldn't figure out how to make it end, and people weren't returning my calls, and I had a deadline. And he finally just looked at me and said, you know, just write what you know and how you know it. That's all you can do today. And then try to figure out a little bit more tomorrow and finally a better story. But for right now, I got to meet deadline. Write what you know and how you know it. I swear I think of those words still so often <laughs> when I'm lost, you know, trying to figure out a story and trying to figure out, again, people aren't returning my calls or I'm not getting the interview I want. And you're trying to figure out what's the lead and what's important here. And I just think, just say what you know and how you know it. That's all you can do. So yeah, I've benefited from a number of good editors over the years and up to this day who have saved me from myself and reminded, <laughs> don't overcomplicate it. Just write yeah. what you know. That's the beauty of just write what journalism you and my day job, as opposed to a book, where really, if you've had years to work on something, like mm -hmm. you should have thoughtfully figured out what it is you're trying to say. Right. That may or may not be true, but you know that's the goal. But in your day job, I often think I could make this interview better if I had another two hours to prep, but <laughs> I don't. I don't even have two minutes. It's go right now. Say what you know and how you know it is a pretty good. Yeah. You mentioned writing books and you've mm -hmm. you've written thrillers. I have so far. So interesting <laughs> and so different than what your day job is. And then and those are and you love writing the thrillers. <laughs> I do. And I think part of it is it's so different from my day job. I always find when I'm writing fiction. It's like whichever one I'm doing, the other one seems so much more desirable and yes, easier. Yes. I'm, if I'm, you know, trying to write fiction, again, talk about like getting lost. You're trying to figure out, is this character likable? Is this character plausible? How much detail do I need to tell the reader? Like, do they want to know what this cafe looks mm -hmm. like in great detail so they can picture themselves there? Or does that feel completely extraneous and you just want to get to <laughs> what happened next? There's a thousand decisions you're making on every page. And I always think journalism is so much easier. I don't have to worry if this character it's is plausible. The they are who they are. Yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll be doing my day job and having one of those days where no one is returning my calls for a story and I'm out of time and I'm just thinking, God, if I could just make it up, like how much right. easier would that be? Which you can obviously do in fiction. So the ability <laughs> to exercise both those parts of my brain has been a lot of fun. 
And this and, book, the title yeah. is so amazing. It period goes period. So period fast period. When Heather told us about the book, we're like, yeah, yeah. Just the title got us, you know? How did you come That's up? all credit to my editor, which Good. I will pass along. It was yes. not the working title that I had as we were trying to figure out what is the book about? What is it? And she said, you know, you have a phrase like early in the book in the first chapter about it goes so fast. fast. And that's true. And yeah. it's also true because, you know, I've written a book about my story, which is trying to be good at my job and trying to be a good mom at the same time, Yeah, which some people will relate to, but many people wow. are not moms or not at this stage of parenthood. But I think we all have that feeling about something in our lives that like, it goes so fast. Goes you so blink fast. and like, how are we here? Yeah. yeah. And sometimes you're in slow motion. Sometimes like those early, like you said, act two, the beginning of act two, <laughs> things are pretty in slow motion, but it's going by fast all yeah. at the same time. And so what made you decide to write this book? And, and I think what we read is that you wanted to make the year stick. So much was going on and you just really wanted to remember it. Is that yeah. why you wrote it? I think that's an accurate way of putting it. I picked for the quote at the beginning of the book, a quotation I had seen from Toni Morrison, the great writer, mm -hmm. who said once, you know, if there's a book you really want to read and it hasn't been written yet, you need to go write it. Mm. And I thought, I can't be the only one having this experience of, you know, I think anybody who's a parent, been a parent, gets the pick your word, the juggle, the work-life yeah. balance, the leaning in, the leaning out, all of that. But I thought it was supposed to get way easier <laughs> as my mm -hmm. kids grew up. I found myself at a point where I had two teenagers and <laughs> it felt harder. Okay, Not yeah. in the sense of, obviously, a teenager is less demanding on many levels than a newborn or a toddler. They don't you know, need me to bathe them or, you know, they can make their own toast right. in the morning. But the trade-offs and the deals I was cutting with myself, the stakes felt higher. Mm, and yeah. I did suddenly hit this moment of my oldest was about to be a senior in high school. It was going to be the last year that we were all guaranteed to live under the same roof. And I wanted to reckon with my choices in real yeah. time. And be intentional about it because, you know, I'm the queen of to-do lists and running from one thing to the next mm -hmm. and just like checking the things off and just go, 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 go. And you can look up and realize, you know, days, yeah. weeks, months of your life disappear checking off the to-do list. And you haven't just kind of sat there and thought, what am I doing? Is this right. what I should be doing this time? Right. And I wanted to do that. Trisha and I have eight children between us. So she has four and I have four. So your book really resonated for us. <laughs> we were laughing and crying out loud. Yeah. I mean, we were oh like, yes, God. yes, yes, yes. Oh my God. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm wondering if it was the pandemic that brought this reality to the forefront for you. And is that when you decided to write the book? I think it opened up the time to be able to write the book. Mm. I have a demanding full-time job, which is, you know, front and center of the trade-offs that I've made all these years. And the idea of writing a book on top of that, on top of trying to be a good mom, particularly yeah. in the year when I had intentionally said, okay, I got to prioritize home life and family and kids this year of all years, if it's going to be the last. The idea of trying to write a book on top of all that is insane. <laughs> and I think the only way it happened was that there was suddenly nowhere to go. 
nothing happening on the weekend. I'm a soccer mom. I've spent last weekend, you know, on the road to a, you know, hour there, hour back. Oh, yeah. Suddenly there were no soccer games. Right. And so for the first time ever, the like, what should we do today? <laughs> I have teenagers who aren't going to wake up before noon. I got, a, I got a few hours. Maybe I'll sit down and write. It did open it up in that, that way, way. But I think it was you know, just the clock was ticking. ticking. You know, when you have a two-year-old that if all goes to plan, they're going to be 18 at some point, but it's so hard to wrap your arms yeah. around that. And the years do just race by. Just race by. Dora and I talk a lot about mindfulness, staying in the mm. present moment and all that. So we want to talk about your choices, but you talk about, <laughs> it was just one that we're like, oh my God, that's so true. How do you do success and stay in the moment? And yeah. you're walking with your son, which I, I don't even know what page it was, but you guys went to look at colleges and you're like, oh my gosh, he's, you know, now we're looking at his LSATs and okay, where's he going to go to grad school? And you're walking, you're thinking about it. And then you're thinking, God, he must be so overwhelmed with all of this ahead of him. And we're coaching them to think like that, but he's thinking about what he's going to do tonight. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Oh, that just made us laugh so loud. Okay, no one's really in the present moment, but we're like, oh my God. Okay, yeah, after just... this, what next? Yeah, junior year really matters. Okay, I can remember saying that. This year really, really matters. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. This was so, speaking of the pandemic, I mean, you know, I had this particular child whose entire junior year of high school was wiped out and was virtual schooling. And so we hadn't done any of the college visit stuff that normally we would have hoped to do. So he was going to visit, really his first college visit was in October of senior year of high school. And we are wandering around the University of Chicago campus and the student tour guide is peppily telling us all the great (laughs) things about the college and how fun and how awesome it is. Then something about, yeah, the statistic about what percentage of, you know, students who had wanted to apply to law school had gotten in and it was really high. And my son was like, okay, locking in. Should we go see the law school? I'm like, should we go see the law school? Like we're, we haven't even gotten you into college yet. I don't want like, okay, we can go see the law school. And yeah, he was very quiet as we walked back to the hotel. And I just thought, is he, you know, I'm stressed out thinking yeah. of all the college essays he yeah. has to write. I'm sure he must be stressed out. I took him to dinner that night. One-on-one time I was excited for we sit down and his phone starts beeping and, you know, vibrating and ringing and all the rest. And it's, he's posted on social media that he's there. And um, I didn't think he knew anyone in Chicago, but all his friends from summer camp and soccer teams of years past are checking in and inviting him to stuff. And as I was thinking, God, he must be so stressed about the essays. And he's like, no, I'm stressed about how short I can cut this dinner without getting mom. Get to the party. There is a fraternity party that clearly Early, I need to get to. So, so he, you know, he was off into the night, and you so sit there and cute. think, you know, this is the goal. Like this is what you want is that yeah. your kid is happy and independent and has friends, and he'll come back and have dinner with me one of these days. But again, you just had us laughing out loud, and yeah. then like how the family names and your husband's. Oh <laughs> yeah, I have the same thing in my. Everybody's George, and um, we know. Yeah, you know that. Yeah, yeah. So um, lots of Georges, and you have lots of James. So the older son, who was the one whose last year I was staring down and decided to write the book about, his name yes. is James, James, which was a complete no-brainer because <laughs> my father's name is James, my husband's father' name is James, my grandfather is James, my husband's grandfather is James, great grand. <laughs> grandfather, great grandfather. And it's my husband's middle name. I'm like, okay, 
done. And I actually like the name. So we'll name him James. We've honored everyone. Now we can move on. We had only boys. So there was no Mary Louise that was going to be passed down anywhere. And somehow I wasn't really focused on it. My son's names all come from my husband's side of the family because their last name is his. And then I got the weirdest tweet one day. I had tweeted about uh, this refugee crisis in Eastern Europe on the Belarus-Poland border, as it was. And someone tweeted at me, apropos of nothing to do with that story, I have named a chicken for you. And I thought, (laughs) you what? I mean, you get some weird (laughs) tweets, but okay. And I wrote her back. I'm like, "Uh, you named a chicken for me? So we get in an exchange and it is, it's this, yeah, it's um, a woman in Missouri who raises chickens who (laughs) is a big NPR listener (laughs) and has named chickens for some of her Favorite, favorite journalists, people. also for Supreme Court justices. I mean, I was quite honored to have, to have made the cut for this in-house. Um, but yes, there was That's a chicken sweet. who has sadly since left us and gone to chicken heaven. But the chicken was Mary Louise Clucky. And I did not realize till I see a picture of my namesake, this beautiful russet head and thought, Oh my God, that means so much. There's there's a living creature out there that uh, is carrying my name. And I hadn't thought about <laughs> that that would mean so much, but it does. Yeah. And you talk also about, and you say this, that this year was reckoning, kind of looking at your choices and kind of getting real with yourself, right? And feeling kind of your, as we say, feeling your feelings all the way through in a way. Can you talk about that? And you talk in the book about how bizarre it was that your son is a super soccer player, right? But he wasn't even one and he's like kind of great at it. And yet the exact time of their games is the exact time of your show. Oh, yeah. My sons both love soccer. It's the animating passion of their young lives. They've always played. They've always played travel. They've always played for school. And last year, as I was writing this, they both, for the first time, because they're a little over two years apart, so not usually on the same teams, but they'd both made their high school varsity team. Those high school varsity games tend to be right around four o'clock on weekday afternoons, which is a fine time to have a soccer game. However, (laughs) 4 p.m. Eastern is also, to the minute, the exact time that All Things Considered goes on air. So it's a direct conflict and technology, you know, permits us to Zoom places and do all kinds of things we couldn't do a generation ago. But so far, I've not found a way to broadcast a national news program from the bleachers while screaming my head (laughs) off for my kids. So I missed every game because I have a job and I needed to be in the anchor chair. And it's not the kind of job where you can kind of skulk off and hope no one will notice. You got to be there when the mic light goes on and I guess for years had thought, not ideal. I really hate missing these games, but next year I'll figure this out. Next Mm. year I'll figure this out. Next time, next time, next time. And suddenly you have a child starting senior year and there aren't any more next times. Like you're Mm. out of do-overs. And that classic, whether you're a parent or not, that feeling of, I need to be in two places at once. And it's not possible. Hit me. And it hit me both in terms of my choices for that year and all the ones that I'd made leading up to it and was really the genesis to start thinking deeply on this and writing about this book because there's no easy answer there. Neither of those slots is going to shift and you need to be in two places at once. Can you have it all? Can you have it all at once? Like maybe not on the same day. (laughs) Maybe not in the same soccer season. Right. 
Well, so yeah. that reminds me of the story at the beginning of your book where you talk about the role of women in the workplace and how you had taken some time off from work and you bumped into your friend who was uh, on her way uh, to the White House dressed very chic and and so tell that story and because I think it speaks to how hard it is for women to make these choices. My younger son, who is a thriving, happy, active teenager now, talked really late. Like he was two years old and he wasn't even doing baby talk, nothing. I came home from his age two checkup at the pediatrician with a mandate, which was you need intervention now and it needs to be significant. Like if you want to get him on track and keep him at the right age level for schooling and all the rest, like you need intensive speech therapy for this kid several days a week. And even if you find the world's greatest speech therapist ever, they can only do so much in, you know, three hours a week with him. So you'll get all these exercises and things to do with him, you know, the other 23 hours a day. And I just remember leaving this pediatrician's appointment and thinking, well, how does that work? Because I don't see how I delegate this to the babysitter. And I don't have the kind of job where I can, you know, by the time you get the kid there and get them home and get them, you're talking like three hours out of your day. I don't have that kind of job. And even if I could make that work somehow, I can't delegate like all the exercises and follow up and coaching and reading and all the things they wanted us to do to a babysitter and then roll in at six, seven at night. It just doesn't work. You know, my older son was four and then and Alexander was two. And I just thought, okay, when the kids and work come into direct and persistent conflict like that, the promise I made to myself when I had kids was the kids got to come first and my son needs me. So I went to my editors at NPR and said, I'm going to need a year <laughs> unpaid because I need to be with my kid. And they, to their credit, said, fine, but obviously we're going to give your beat to another reporter. And I don't know what's going to be open when you come back, if you come back. And I watched them, you know, kind of give my desk to another, another reporter and hand in all my recording gear and, uh. you know, my press passes and all the rest. And I embarked on this full on year of speech therapy with my younger son. And on one of those mornings that we didn't have therapy, we were, I think, headed to the playground. He was in his stroller and oh. I was dressed like <laughs> a mom who's not going anywhere with like applesauce in my hair and Cheerios <laughs> coming out of my armpits and, you know, all the rest singing a song to him as we walked down the street, because this is part of what they coach you, verbalize, constantly verbalize, even if he doesn't respond, keep talking and singing with him. And I ran into, yeah, a competitor, <laughs> um, a friend, but a competitor from another big news organization who had the same beat that I had given up and walked away from, who also had a toddler around that age. I called out hi, and she didn't recognize me. Oh. I think I looked so different. I like, I was, you know, no makeup and my hair was, as I say, <laughs> applesauce infused. And, um, we chatted for a few minutes and it was great to see her. And then she said, I've, well, I've got to go. Um, you know, I, I have this interview I've been trying to get for a while at the White House. And she ran and hopped in a taxi in her beautiful suit and heels and <laughs> off she went. And I stood there feeling like somebody just, you know, knifed me through the heart. I really wish, and I don't know if I could go back and tell my younger self, see this moment in a different way, but I felt she represented so much of what I'd given up. Mm -hmm. I loved my job. I loved my beat. I love being a journalist. I love my kid, obviously. And I knew right. that what I was doing with him 
couldn't be outsourced, but I felt like I'd thrown away my career and beat myself up the whole rest of that day for having walked away from a big part of my identity that I loved. And when I ran into this woman again, quite some time later, she recognized me. I was back at work. My son had started talking. I had a different beat and was covering the Pentagon then for NPR. And we chatted for a few minutes and she shared that she had cried after she ran into uh, me. And I was like, what? You know, why? Why? Um, and she said, because you looked so happy and you were with your son and y'all were off to the playground. And I had just put my toddler in daycare where some stranger was going to take her to the park. And I cried the whole taxi to the White House thinking, what the hell am I doing with my life? And I thought, this is so typical. You know, we yeah. were so good at beating ourselves up for not being able to do what is, in fact, impossible. Because okay. I don't know a single one of us who's figured out how in the same morning you're with your son in the park, teaching them to sing, teaching them to speak, and at the White House doing the big interview you oh. wanted. You cannot be in two places at once. And who cares? I was fine. Our kids were fine. Nobody was judging but me. I opened that chapter with just a, a line about so much of life is what we choose to see. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think we're all so much better at being, you know, generous and kind and gentle with our friends, with others. And then I know at least I'm just so hard on myself. And part of the grace I found in writing this book was examining those choices from when the boys were little up through now and yeah. thinking, you're doing just fine. You're doing your best. They're doing your mm -hmm. best. Really, not that many people are judging except you. Trisha and I always refer to this comment, which is when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's such a truth that if we learned early on, yeah. we would end a lot of suffering. Tell yeah. us about your group. You call them FLNs or your force of nature <laughs> group. We love that. Tell us about that. The forces of nature, nature. the fawns, um, bestowed <laughs> by our husbands back when they were boyfriends <laughs> years ago to my 10 college roommates and me. And I should qualify and say, you know, we call each other college roommates because it's the kind of the succinct way of explaining our relationship. And we were all at college together and graduated the same year. We did not all actually room together. I think the nickname came about because our so boyfriends cute. were like, God, y'all are unpredictable and a whole <laughs> lot of trouble, <laughs> expensive, um, but you're not boring. And that is certainly true. These are 10 women who I was close to in college, have become closer to since. Most of us randomly assigned freshmen or sophomore year to be roommates, so very different yeah. We live all over the country and have very different lives and different interests, but have stayed incredibly close, which when I thought about how have we managed to stay so close all these years, I think we finished college in 1993. When we graduated, nobody had a laptop, nobody had email, right. no cell phones, long distance, I think was still expensive to make a long distance call then. But it was right around that time that all of that changed and people got cell phones and got emails and it became cheaper and cheaper. And then, you know, cost nothing to call somebody on the other side of the country or around the world. And I 
think for many years it allowed just the conversation mm -hmm. that we'd had in the dorm room all those late nights yeah. just to continue to the point that to this day, our group text chat is just constantly going with somebody's joke or somebody's picture of <laughs> their kid or their dad or their dog or their this, or I need it's advice so about this new diet or what are you doing for skincare or, you know, <laughs> discussing politics and books and all of it. We get together so as often awesome. as we as can. Um, we just had a reunion in January, where we all flew into Boston. So awesome. As I say, we're all over the country, so it kind of takes some doing around work and family schedules to converge, but we have prioritized that, and it is one of the true gifts in totally. my life to have people who know you that well, yeah. know <laughs> all the jokes, and kind of hold you up, and they have I saved me when I've needed it. One of the fun things to watch, one of the fawns has <laughs> two boys, also a girl, but two boys who are the exact same age as my boys, and they live in a different city and have not grown up in the same schools or neighborhoods, but we sent them to summer camp and had them bunk together. So oh, nice. my oh, roommate's kid rooming with my sons and they are friends again very oh. different boys but friends to this day and i think you can almost that. feel there's the history of their relationship going yeah. back to like getting bitten by bugs and canoeing around <laughs> yeah. a lake when they were 11 together <laughs> but i think they feel the history that predates before. them before like For their sure. mom and i have been friends since well before they were born when we were teenagers ourselves and oh, have grown up together and so to watch your kids grow up together and feel a level of yeah. comfort with someone who just gets them, gets yeah. their family, gets the whole deal, that is also a real gift. It just is. It just I just had that vision of just like roots, you know, like they just mm -hmm. feel they belong. Do you know they're part yeah. of something? Okay, so <laughs> when you talk about the graduation. Okay, I don't know why, but I said to Dora, this just made me laugh so hard. But then that night or the night before you get an email from the teacher, <laughs> you didn't name him, right? He's like, okay, I need that AP statistics book back. And he had escalated it up to you. Okay, oh. here we are. So proud of our boys. Yeah. <laughs> And he just well, hasn't gotten that book back. It was James's <laughs> senior year AP statistics teacher, <laughs> which who had assigned, and I kid you not, you can go look it up on Amazon. <laughs> this textbook is 800 pages. It's like the foundation brick of your house. <laughs> and they want it back. And James has failed to turn it in. And I discover <laughs> to my horror, written and written and written. And James is, I guess James is like, I'm over it. I'm, I'm graduating. Yeah, I'm graduating. You know, find your own statistics <laughs> textbook. I'm not lugging this thing around. I'm done. Oh. So he has not responded. So the teacher has escalated to me. So I show up at graduation and, you know, you're trying to wear your looking like cute good. little dress yeah, good. heels for all the pictures. And I am the one lugging this. So I'm around trying to find the stats teacher. <laughs> of my two children yeah. my younger alexander would have turned in the thing yeah. on day one mm -hmm. he was like he's so organized that morning as i'm like you lug the stats textbook back to your teacher <laughs> go find him and james was like if i take it i'll just lose it mom <laughs> i was like well that's true you will you'll like leave it under your chair at graduation it'll never get back and i'll get charged god knows what right. for this book. <laughs> You know, that knowledge that your kids are going to turn out the way they turn out, almost no matter what you do, my yeah. two boys could not be more different. And one of them is going to turn in the textbook and the <laughs> other just is like, dude, you're on your own. <laughs> okay, and then when you said he got the stickers. 
<laughs> yes, the reward for finally handing it in, which was yes. made more poignant by the fact that we finally find the stats teacher in the crowd after graduation when all the boys, my sons are at an all boys school and they're all like dressed up in their blazers, broken out cigars. So they're puffing away and they're all, you know, six, two oh, and yeah. one eighty, and puffing cigars. And the stats teacher rewards him with a sticker. And it took me <laughs> right back to fourth grade. Yeah, it's so true. The acts so are just like going back and forth. Okay. That we just thought that yeah. was really, pretty funny. But then when you said that there was that moment your husband's a really good photographer and you said he captured so many, but there was that moment. Okay. This is a real tearjerker. The one that, okay. The one that you just saw your little guy. My husband is an excellent photographer and took all the pictures you're supposed to take of, you know, every permutation of the family group and walking into graduation and out of graduation, all the things. But as I went through the picture, that's going to make me cry too, is um, he was Coming down the main aisle to go find his seat, and they've given the senior parents, you know, the primo seats, Mm -hmm. so we're right at the front on the aisle. I'm trying to figure out what's going on when I first look at this picture, because he's, my son is not looking at the camera, he's looking like to the side, and he has this smile on his face, and I look and I'm trying to think, and I realize my husband took this picture, and I was standing, he's looking at me, he's looking at his mom, and he had that just sweet proud, shy smile that it's just like he used to look when he was a little boy and he'd built a tree fort that he was so proud of, you know, waiting for the praise. It was the same look. And to capture that expression, it's my little boy and that look of pride and love between a mother and her child. Mm -hmm. Um, You could see it. You could just see it all over my son's face. He was proud. He loved us. And it was his big day, and he was so excited to share it with us. And uh, I've got that picture up on my desk and look at it all the time. So sweet. And all the things that you angst about between the choices and all the things that we do as mothers, it's that moment. Like, you know, it's it's still there. It's everything. And there weren't any mistakes or there, you know, just being able to maybe look at it like that. There were plenty of mistakes. Okay. Okay. The idea that that's life. We all are just doing our best. It was the same um, year that Ketanji Brown Jackson was nominated to the Supreme Court as the first African-American woman justice to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is a big deal. Yeah. And I didn't know her, but she was at college with me. She's one year older than me. So I just wow. kept thinking, I must I must have passed her. I must have sat next to her in the dining hall. And here she is about to go on the U.S. Supreme Court. How <laughs> cool is that? You know, it was that moment from her confirmation hearing, the famous photograph of her daughter, who was seated behind her as she was testifying in her confirmation hearings before Senate Judiciary. And her daughter was captured with just this look of utter pride Mm. and love, just beaming at her mom. And you look at that picture and think, man, like that sums it up. And she testified about the choices and trade-offs she made and said, you're a working mom. You don't don't always get it right. But you love your kids and you do your best and somehow it's going to turn out okay. And I just thought, hell yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Whether you're just trying to get to the grocery store or testifying to take your place on the Supreme Court, we love our kids and we're all doing our best. We're just doing our best. The one thing that I thought we wanted to kind of explore, if there's time, is the feeling of Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. What that means again to you, because we're kind of in act three (laughs) and we're thinking there's got to be an act four. (laughs) I have no doubt. Many acts to come. 
As I really sat and reckoned with my choices this year, one of the things I thought about was if you were to see your life as a play, on what scene, on what moment would you open the curtain? Like how big a cast would you need? Um, Would this look like? And I thought I'm 51 and feel like, you know, act one was kind of being a kid and school and college and actually going on into all the significant milestones of like my first job and getting married and our first house, all those things that all kind of felt like act one because the curtain opening on act two, which to me was like having kids. It's so dwarfed everything that had come before in terms of completely upending my life. My boys are now 17 and 19, and I will obviously always be their mom and always love them and they'll always be at the center of my life. But them needing me desperately and all the time, that's changing. That's really Mm -hmm. shifting. And so this thing that has occupied the last 19 plus years of my life... Mm. Again, I don't want to like you know suggest that the curtain is coming to a close on motherhood. Certainly not. But in terms of the animating, dominating focus of my mm-hmm. days, it's shifting, and I'm mm-hmm. staring at a Act Three. You know, where I'm definitively middle aged. My kids are about to be out of the house. I lost a parent. Just so many changes, and thinking to me. It's easy to be unnerved by that because, you know, I'm getting older and grayer with each act. <laughs> and you kind of wonder, are all the big adventures behind me? Like, I'm not going to have more kids. I'm never going to have my first job again. I might reinvent myself at some point in my career, but probably the door to being an astronaut or a ballerina. <laughs> like, path is narrowing. Not On the other hand, you know, I feel like for me... I'm looking at this act and thinking, I kind of know what I'm doing now. I kind of don't care so much what anybody else thinks about what I'm doing. And I still have the energy to go do it. So how fun is that? So I don't know quite what this will look like or when the curtain will close on this one and what (laughs) act waits next. I think if you look at your life in in acts like that or in chapters, it's, it's a useful framing for figuring, okay, is this script rocking along the way I want? Or am I ready to like maybe, you know, call out, I don't know, I'm trying to, now I'm thinking of mixing up all the metaphors, but total <laughs> costume change, new set, right. like change direction. Well, lots to look forward to in our next <laughs> act, I think. I Hopefully. Think so. Mary Louise, your book is a gift. Ah, so good. We've so been good. so inspired by it. And we're just so happy you were able to join us today on Health Gig. I'm so grateful for the chance to talk about it and to you for reading and what a lovely conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>